All right, we are on chapter 11 of the Disciplines of a Godly Man book. It is the discipline of the tongue. And once again, I'll say it seems strange to say discipline of the tongue. Uh, we think of a discipline in terms of exercise or a special diet, but we don't always think in terms of the tongue. But it doesn't take long before we realize yeah, the tongue is one of those areas that does require a lot of self-control, a lot of discipline. So I'd like to start with a passage that's always convicting to us. James 3, verses 3 through 6, uh, talking about our efforts to tame our tongues or to make our tongues say only what they should say, good things, and not say what they should not say. That's the topic here as we jump in. James 3, verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So there's your start to introduce ourselves to the uh, topic of the, of the tongue and the problem that it is. Setting my clock here. So the, the destructive power in the tongue is evident in uh, those verses. In the chapter, the author gives this story of how, not the tongue per se, but the pen, uh, the idea of us communicating words, has the potential of great damage. He tells a story of uh, 1899, uh, the story of the Chinese Boxer Rebellion, and how something that happened in the United States by four reporters in uh, the city of Denver, Colorado, who wrote false reports together on four newspapers contributed to what happened in China in 1899 in the Boxer Rebellion. So his point is basically that bad words have far-reaching bad results. So you can read that in the book. I summarized it for you. So the topic now is verbal poison. Verbal poison. What could we say that hurts, harms other people? Uh, We think of poison as something that we ingest that harms us, Verbal poison is words that we say to others that poison them. So we have a quick definition of several. Number one, gossip. Gossip is a form of verbal poison. It's saying behind a person's back what you would never say to the person's face. Next one is flattery. Saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his back. Innuendo is making a person seem bad without actually uttering a statement of gossip. I think you understand how that could happen. Another form of verbal poison is criticism, constantly finding fault. If the only thing you can say is negative, it ends up as poison. Another category is slander, which is making false charges against another person's reputation. And the Bible upholds that a, a Christian's reputation is something that's valuable to us and something that is worth protecting, and we are to protect each other's. Reputation, so slander is a sin against another person's um, reputation, the way that people view that person. Another aspect of verbal poison is diminishment, conveying true but negative information 
about another person. So diminishing that person. Again, this is true stuff, but need it be said? So it's poison because it's being conveyed. And so the idea behind all those categories of verbal poison is that we're taking away from the accomplishments or virtues of another person. And this is a person who's made in God's image, is a person who, if it's a Christian, is saved by his grace, and it's a brother or sister in the Lord, so taking away from their uh, virtue or reputation is damaging to them, therefore verbal poison. So I'm summarizing things he said in the chapter. We're in uh, chapter 11 of the Disciplines of a Godly Man book, Discipline of, of the Tongue. So why would people do that? Why would we, as sinners, guided by our sinful nature and our flesh, say things like this? Why do people who are non-believers say these sorts of things? Why would anyone say bad things? So some motives he talks about here. Uh, one is to get revenge. If they did it to you, <laughs> you're going to do it back. It's like the classic two boys in the schoolyard, right? He pushed me, so what else was I to do but to put him back? Um, we as sinners tend to uh, push back when people push us, wanting to get back. Another motive is to elevate yourself. Uh, you could not walk on water, but you could walk on others. If you um, put other people down, then you um, look higher or feel higher. Walking on other people, putting them down, elevates yourself. Of course, it's false. It doesn't work that way, but it's a motivation. A third bad motive is to entertain what is more fascinating, what is more engaging and interesting entertaining than hearing something juicy about another person? So, of course, there's that bad motive. And then a fourth and last bad motive is to pretend to be righteous. I just want to share this for prayer. <laughs> and the prayer request comes and makes someone look terrible, and uh, you pretend to be righteous because you care, and you're sharing this only, of course, for prayer, and it's a masked bad motive. So moving on, um, bad tongue as related to our walk with God. What is, in it, what is the indicator for us about our spiritual life, about our hearts, about the condition of our hearts if we enter into these um, bad habits of bad poison, bad use of our words and our tongue? James 1.26 um, gives us a very stark statement about the whole of our religion. Our, our practice, our walk as Christians, if we do not behave well in this category, if we don't do well with our with our tongues, it's funny. I have this. Uh, the, I don't know if your phone has this, where it recognizes your face instead of punching in four digits or something every single time. And I had a cookie in my mouth the other day. And it was flopped down like this. I, I was yet to do one of those things where you tip it up and you get the rest of the cookie. No-handed cookie eating. And right at that moment, I tried to open the phone and it didn't recognize me. <laughs> like, this is Ben with a cookie. This is Ben without a cookie. Apparently, I look different. Um, not going to show you. Okay, we're on James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, control his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Wow. If we think that this is just one of 18 different topics we're going to cover about godliness, Christ-likeness, aspects of Christianity, it's like, yeah, take it or leave it. I suppose we should watch our tongue. James corrects us and says, if you're not controlling your tongue, your Christianity is worthless. 
Wow, okay, uh, enough said there um, of the importance of this. So how do we test this? How do we um, measure where we are and then begin to do better? So in this chapter, our Pastor Hughes, our author, says this, quote, the true test of a man's or a person's spirituality is not his ability to speak, rather his ability to bridle his tongue. Not what you say, but what you keep yourself from saying is a, is a good measure. So it's another way to say what James was writing uh, to us. And then Jesus is so helpful in Matthew 12 to help us um, gauge and then make progress in this area, to see that your tongue is tied to your heart. In Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you can't just say, oops, I didn't mean to say that. No, you meant to say that, which means the problem is deeper than you realize. The problem is in your heart. So the tongue inevitably reveals what's on the inside. So that's really helpful if you're serious about making strides in this area. Examining not just how do I keep myself from saying those things, but why did I say those things? And how can I repent at the heart level? So a quick example. Do you talk too much? And I understand I'm a preacher standing in front of you asking this question. And as there's one finger pointed at you, there's all these other fingers pointed back at me. I talk too much at least one day a week, right? But more seriously, the question we ask ourselves, um, am I always talking in the conversations that I have? If I am... What does that say about me? The things that I have to say are more important than the things that you have to say, so I'll keep talking. It's pride. I don't have to humble myself and hear what you have to say. It's lack of love. I don't want to hear what you have to say, and so on. But we could do that with any of the examples of verbal poison that we covered earlier. So as we wrap up this chapter about the tongue, um, it has awesome power for good as well. Don't just think the tongue is some bad thing. Why don't we just never speak again, cut our tongues out, and be done with it? No, there's, of course, incredible value. How else does the gospel get spread? It's verbal. Uh, Preaching happens in uh, building God's kingdom. It's an action of words. So the tongue has awesome power for good, for salvation, for sanctification, uh, for healing people, and even for worship. We all speak together as we recite God's word. We sing together. We're using our words that way. So steps we could take as we uh, work on disciplining our tongue. To confess the sin of our lips. You just have to stop and admit it. You think of uh, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. To recognize and confess before God and tell tell yourself that you have a problem in this area. And then, um, as we'll get to in a moment, repentance includes stopping it. You actually have to stop saying those things. And then praying in an ongoing and detailed way. If, if your prayer list only includes the things that you're requesting God for or the people that you're praying for their salvation and doesn't include specific things about your sanctification, how about adding this one? Lord, give me discipline with my words. Uh, and then praying about that in an ongoing and detailed way. You'll become a lot more aware of what you're saying that's helpful, what you're saying that's harmful. And so disciplining ourselves to exactly at those spots to replace bad words with good words. What could I say to help build this person up in this instance instead of what I said last time, which cut this person down and made a lot of pain and hurt? So here's a a quotation from our author. Lives 
have been elevated and lives have been cast down by human speech. Goodness has flowed like a sweet river from our mouths, and so has the cesspool. So it's both. Your, your tongue, our words, have the ability to do great good, to build people up, and they also have the ability to cause great harm. Is it possible... Is it possible to sin with your tongue even during prayer? Luke 18, 11, listen. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, quote, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, end quote. Luke 18, 11. He's sinning in prayer. He's saying, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. <laughs> uh, first of all, it's false, but it's certainly uh, prideful, and uh, it, it is not even the pr- proper frame of mind for, for prayer. All right, so ending there, moving on to chapter 12 from Discipline of God, the Man Book, which is the Discipline of Work. Discipline of Work. So again, this is from our author, uh, Pastor uh, Kent Hughes, R. Kent Hughes. And first, he talks about the problem. So we'll set out the problem with work. Um, discipline, you understand, is work. I mean, there's, there's effort required for you to have a job, hold a job, or fulfill your calling in the home if it's not in the workforce or whatever. So in 1974, Mr. Studs Terkel published a book called Working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. That's the title of the book. At the beginning of the book, Mr. Turkle wrote, This book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence, about daily humiliations. In other words, his view of work is you go to work every day and you get humiliated. Is that a good Christian view of the workplace and the occupation and vocations that we have? But I think what he's doing is expressing the way that millions of our fellow Americans view their jobs. Millions of people regard their work as something they have to bear until they finally win the lottery, until they finally retire, until the rich uncle gives them enough that they can quit this job and tell the boss off and go home. Millions of people see work as something simply to bear. So that's a problem. He's addressing that here. How do Christians view work? He also describes how across these decades and a couple generations, there has been a loss or a decline in this category, a loss of satisfaction in work. They interviewed a number of people and said 90% of American workers were dissatisfied with their jobs, 90%. So for the majority of the workforce, if, if this is at all true, for the majority, work is dull and meaningless. Only one in four employees would then give his or her best effort on the job anyway. One in four. And then there's also a loss of balance in in work. Uh, You have laziness. So 20% of a worker's time is wasted. In a Monday to Friday job, um, he actually describes this in the chapter if you want to be entertained and and read that. You know, if if Monday morning is lost because you're sleepy, you're just looking for coffee... Monday afternoon, you're really just trying to catch up with whatever you forgot to do on Friday. Uh, Tuesday, you really get started. You know, Wednesday, you take a long lunch break. He kind of goes through all of it. So let's say you add that all up. You, you lose 
20%, which is one day in five, you, you, you lose a whole day. That's laziness end, but you also have the overworking end. You have those in our workforce who are workaholics. And workaholism is simply when you put everything behind work. Family, um, recreations, hobbies, leisure, friends, church, everything gets behind work. Work is A number one, you always work. Laziness on one side, overwork on the other side. So either way, you have a loss of balance. We call it nowadays work-life balance. And that's a phrase that's been more common now since he even wrote this book. And there's also a loss of depth in work, how deep it is. You, you see it in some of the phrases that people will say about work. You have these shallow folk religion things that people love to say. For example, have you heard this one? Creativity is 2% inspiration, 98% perspiration. Okay, there's value or tr some truth in that, but you know, it's only this deep of thinking about how work really is to be seen. Or uh, this, this one about goals. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Um, if that's the whole depth of the wisdom we're relying on to get through you know, our work week, we need something more. Or this, um, success in life comes not from holding a good hand, but from playing a poor hand well. In other words, my job sucks, my um, supervisor stinks, the whole workforce is out of sync, but I'm going to do best I can over here. Um, or perseverance, times, tough times never last, but tough people do, things like that. Um, or some men dream dreams and ask why, I dream dreams and ask why not. Um, these sorts of things are meant to inspire you know, for the next four minutes. But how do we actually get to something that is valuable that will propel us to work well? And there's also a loss of ethics in the workplace. Uh, a failure in work ethics leads to a loss of moral ethics in general for the person. So then he begins to uncover, thankfully, in our chapter, what the Bible says about work. He starts with how we're created in God's image, Genesis 1.27, how God himself is a worker that he worked to create in the first uh, six days. So therefore, man, as created in the image of God, must be a worker. Um, there's great dignity, therefore, <clears throat> in being a worker, that our work matters to God as our creator and, again, as our redeemer, that work was given before sin came. So the fact that it's in creation before the fall is huge. <clears throat> it means that it's inherently good, Everything that we said in the last three minutes about what our culture constantly says to us about work is wrong-headed. It's false. Work is good. Um, Genesis 2.15, the Lord put him in the garden to work it. That's before the fall. He was a gardener, a farmer, a worker. Then God rested. Genesis 2.2, God himself rested. Where do you see that said in our culture? Is that in anybody's conception of who God is? We need to get back to the Bible for what it says about who God is. God tells us in the second chapter of his book that he rested. What does that tell us? At least this. There's more to life than work. Say that to a workaholic, that God himself rested. Uh, that sin then came and work was bound to a curse. As we read in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, work became uncooperative. Uh, work became painful toil. We understand this. This is what God has shown us about 
work in a fallen world, work in a broken world. So without God, our work is futile, gaining us nothing, as King Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 11 and 17. Then, thankfully, God has redeemed, right? So because of Christ, coming, living, teaching, dying, rising again, now our work is redeemed to take on meaning. Meaning for God as now redeemed people in a world that's still fallen, and yet God is building his kingdom within the fallen world. And so things that we do for his kingdom have permanent, lasting, eternal value. For example, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So you could just take that verse and put it across your computer screen or mirror, but it's helpful to have it in context of the whole message of the Bible leading up to that, and it gives us a very different reason to go to work. The curse is still upon work, but the supply of meaningfulness for the Christian has been reissued, and we live out of that. We live out of the death and resurrection of Christ in the workplace. So what a helpful uh, chapter. Uh, He goes farther and says that we are God's masterpieces twice over. First in creation in the first place. We are actually remarkable. And then when God recreates, redeems, we are again put into the image of Christ. We're the pinnacle of creation, Genesis 1.27. Then we're recreated in Christ, Ephesians 2.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.17. So our work means that we have an ability to do something. We're equipped by God uniquely, each of us, to do something for God and for the the community. We have tasks to, to do, places to do them. And for us who are believers, all of that work gives glory to God. It, it honors him. It, it shows that he's an awesome creator and a, an amazing redeemer. And so all of our work we do uh, for, for him. Um, let me read out these verses he used. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, work would be categorized in whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And then these two... Um, other verses out of Colossians uh, 3.17. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as you go to work, you're doing in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. And then Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That is the overlay of how we view uh, work as, as Christians. He goes farther. I'll just quickly summarize because you can read it in the book. Um, the discipline of our work includes energy, not laziness, enthusiasm, not half-heartedness, um, specifically wholeheartedness, and doing our work excellently as the Lord himself when he looked back over all of his creation and, and six days, he looked and said it was very good. So, well, he said it was good each of the days, and when he created man and woman, then he said it was very good. You ought to be able to do that at the end of your work day. Look back over it and say it was good, and even very good. All right. 
ready to change gears. We're on last week's lesson, Westminster Confession of Faith Now, um, chapter 14 and 15. I'm glad that we saved this because 14 and 15 ought to be covered together. Faith and repentance. On the top of your page, if you're, if you're looking at that page, chapters 14 and 15, I wrote it reverse. <laughs> I don't know if you would have caught me. Um, chapter 14 says we turn from sin to Christ. That's actually a summary of repentance. And chapter 15 says we keep on relying on him. That's actually faith. So I, I reversed the little phrases that should have been there. But you get it. Um, so chapter 14 is about saving faith. Chapter 15 about repentance unto life. Um, we understand and appreciate the process of our own, of our own conversion. So I'd like to start with that catechism question that's listed there if you're looking at that page. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Westminster Shorter Catechism 86. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. Now, if you notice about these catechism questions, they either use act or grace. So grace is a process. An act is like in justification where we saw God declares, like a gavel coming down. At that moment, he decides, takes action. But things like saving faith are a grace where God continues to give to us the ability to trust in him. He upholds us in our believing, in our receiving Christ, in our resting upon Christ, in our trusting in him. He continues to supply grace for us to continue to believe. So I want to read um, section 1. So switching over now to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, section 1. I'll just read it out. And if you want to follow along, you either have it with you or uh, you can look in your hymn book in the back pages. Section 1 of chapter 14. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe in the saving, to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and ordin- is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. So I want you to notice, it's the way... How does faith get to us? By the ministry of the word. How is faith strengthened and increased? By the ministry of the word. It's word and sacraments. These are our tools. These are the methods or means by which God helps us to grow in faith. So there's three aspects of faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. All those three are tucked within what faith is, how we view faith, how the Reformers, how the uh, Westminster authors view faith. All three are tucked within there. So knowledge is basically your first time hearing and being informed of the facts about Jesus. That knowledge has to be there for you to have true saving faith. You can't say, this bench is Jesus and I'm going to trust in it. That, that's not the facts that are needed. You, you can't have a faith that based in a chair, like if you've ever had a, a class about uh, philosophers, they'll They'll talk about Plato saw a chair and the image of a chair and all those sorts of things. You can really get far afield from what the Bible means by faith without starting with knowledge being the facts. We're talking about that person who was born 2,000 years ago, right? That he, he's both God and man and two distinct natures in one person. That whole idea of what the Bible presents for who Jesus is is the knowledge, the basic facts needed. That's all incorporated within faith. But there's two more aspects. Not only knowledge but also assent, A-S-S-E-N-T, assent, which means having your mind and heart accept as true the facts that you were told about Jesus. It's, it's not just 
excuse me, it's not just that those facts are now known by you. You also have to accept them, to embrace them. I do believe the whole story about Jesus. I, I believe that he came at the first Christmas. I believe that he was a fully man. I believe that he ate and drank and went to the restroom. I believe that he actually was crucified and that he, it was painful, that he actually did die, was buried, rose again. The whole ball of wax, you're assenting, you buy it. That's assent. And then the, the, the third aspect, there's yet another aspect of faith that's essential, and that is trust, personal trust, taking it not just, okay, I understand the facts and I buy the story, but it's for me. If you don't get to that level of it's for me, you don't yet have Christian faith. You haven't been saved. You, you don't embrace Christ for you, for your soul. So placing your own cleansing need and your own personal eternal future into the hands of Jesus Christ alone is the third aspect of faith and all fear are needed. So I'll quickly review. Knowledge, the facts about Jesus. Assent is accepting those facts as true. And uh, trust, personal trust for you, for your, for your soul. So that's what we mean in the Reformed Church when we talk about faith. That's what we mean. For example, I'll read Romans 10, uh, 12 through 12 through 17. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? See how faith is coming in? Have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from me? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So Romans 10, 12 through 17 is one of the proof texts there under section 1. So what does faith rest on? Section 2, I'm going to move along rather than reading section 2. It basically says... What does saving faith rest upon? The Bible. Uh, like 1 Corinthians 1.21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's the preaching of the word, which is then written down, as we'll study today in, in uh, Jeremiah. First he was verbal, and then he had it written down, which is how we get the scrolls. Third section basically says um, that you can identify saving faith in different people differently in terms of degree. Uh, let me read section three. The fa this faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often in many ways assailed and weakened. Assailed simply means attacked, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ who is both the author and finisher of our faith. So he gives faith in the first place. It always comes from God. You don't just get it yourself. It comes from God, which just fits in with everything we've said before. But then also he finishes. He continues to improve and strengthen it. He doesn't just spin you off like a top. He continues to stay engaged and involved to finish our faith. So although different in degrees in different <clears throat> persons, excuse me, and even different degrees in the same person at different times, still this faith is always in essence the same, that it's the things we describe, knowledge, assent, and trust. So you, you might have deeper, more knowledgeable faith now than you did 10 years ago or than you did one year ago. 
you might have deeper knowledge a year from now, Lord willing. But you're, you're, um, you might go through a patch of suffering and, and you'll be doubting more than you were, have less faith, a weakened faith, attacked faith. Um, but through those up and, ups and downs, faith remains what faith is. So I wanted to cover, uh, and we're, we got the ability to easily do this today, cover the chapter on repentance, because it, it has to attach to faith. Everything we've said about faith is one wing, repentance is the other wing. The wings by which a bird flies up in the sky is how a Christian flies to heaven. You've got to have two wings. You, you can't fly with just faith. You can't fly with just repentance. You can't be saved without both. So then it's on the same page, on the bottom half of that same page, chapter 15, on, <clears throat> on uh, repentance. So I want to start with that uh, question 87 that's in the middle of your page. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension or understanding of the mercy of God in Christ, doth or does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. You set out to, you intend to, you have a purpose of, and trying, endeavoring after, really putting effort into obeying next time. Changing your life um, style. So that's a brief definition of repentance. Of course, you have a question in larger catechism is, is 76. Very similar, so I won't take time to read that. But let's go to section 1. Chapter 15, section 1, repentance unto life. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. Pause. Evangelical it comes straight over from the Greek language, euangelion, which means message that's good. Eu means good. Like, um, uh, it's, a, it's a prefix to a word, and then angelion is the word you might recognize. We get the word messenger, angelion, angel. So it's a messenger from heaven as an angel, and the message itself is what God is giving. The angel is really just a person who carries the message. So angel or message, and you means good. It means good news, good message. Okay, so evangelical grace is simply that good news grace message. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. See how they're keeping them together, repentance and faith. So, um, we know that John the Baptist started his ministry preaching a message of repentance, but he was the last of the Old Testament uh, prophets should preachers today be preaching repentance, or do we just preach faith? Um, sometimes whole denominations get confused about this, and in the Reformed denomination, we do not get confused about this. Repentance is an essential part of preaching. Uh, it's an essential part of the gospel message itself. Should preachers today be preaching a message of repentance unto life? Let me prove it not just from the Westminster Confession of Faith, but from your Bible. Luke 24, verse 47, as I've listed there after section 1, says this. Repentance, this is the words of Jesus after he rose again from the den. He met with the disciples on, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Jesus says this. Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. There you have it. That should settle it, right? Repentance is to be preached in the New Testament and perpetually. So we could say it negatively. 
No minister is preaching faithfully if he does not preach repentance unto life. That's where the Reformed churches uh, stand. But should repentance alone be preached? No, of course not. Again, repentance and faith we need to hold, hold together. Mark 1.15, Jesus came preaching, and the first words out of Jesus' mouth, as the, the writer Mark presents his gospel, Mark, the first words out of Jesus' mouth as he came preaching were, repent and believe in the gospel. It's both, repent and believe. He's got the two wings. You can fly to heaven, you can run to Christ, you can be converted by repenting and believing. So Acts 20, 21, Paul declares that he was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So then um, 15.2, if you look on your page, there's three aspects, just like there were three aspects for faith, knowledge, assent, and trust, which I should have written on your handout for you. There are three aspects of repentance, which I did write on your handout for you. Admission of sin, sorrow for sin, turn from your sin. So admission from sin is basically saying, yes, I'm a sinner. If you play basketball and there was a foul on the floor, you were supposed to raise your hand. If it was a foul against you and you know the ref was calling it on you, and they say number 43, and on the back of your jersey it says 43, you're supposed to raise your hand so the people recording at the recording table were write down it was you, um, or 43. You're admitting that you fouled somebody, which is kind of hard for the competitive basketball player to admit. I was not guilty. I didn't do it. But you're just really admitting the ref called it on you. Are you that sinner? Romans 3.20. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. Are you conscious of it? Uh, Psalm 51.3. I know my transgressions. Do you know what you've done? Luke 15.21. Like the returning prodigal, we must say, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And we also say, like um, the bothered Heart and conscience says, Luke 18, 13, God have mercy on me, a sinner. So the first aspect of repentance is admission. The second aspect is sorrow for sin. You could say I did it, but I would do it again. I did it, but so what? Right? See how admission is not enough? You have to have admission, but also sorrow. You mean I grieved God? When you come to awareness of that, it has an emotional and spiritual response. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. There's two kinds of sorrow. One is, the cop pulled me over, now I've got to pay $210. I'm mad and sad. That's kind of sorrow that says, I, I wish I could have used that $200 for something else. And that, that's worldly sorrow, the consequences I can feel. But godly sorrow says, I embarrassed God. I go around as a Christian. I go by the name of Christ. And now I got pulled over. This cop sees my bad testimony. My family's going to find out. I brought a small scandal on the kingdom of God by my behavior. I should have been following the rules and driving according to the speed limit. I offended God by not behaving and operating my vehicle in the way of a Christian manner. So that whole idea, that frame of mind of sorrow, godly sorrow for sin, is what's essential in repentance. You don't just say, well, I did it. God cleaned me up. Amen. That's not repentance. Repentance has to include this aspect of godly sorrow. The third aspect, then, is, as I list there, turn from your sin. 
You get to drive tomorrow. <laughs> How fast are you going to drive tomorrow? You get to decide, but your decision reflects whether or not you've reached the point of actual spiritual repentance. Have you come to the conclusion that what you were doing is wrong and what you intend to do is right? You will obey God. Even if you don't feel like it necessarily, you will organize your life and your thoughts and your behavior in a way that is in compliance with God's word. To actually turn from the sin unto God. So Ezekiel 18.30, repent and turn away from all your transgressions. Joel 2 verse 13, I love the book of Joel. Someday I'm preaching that. Um, Yet even now declares the Lord. So this is the time when God's army is uh, rumbling down the hill against you. And even while he's coming to obliterate you, God has a message that he sends out ahead of his descending army. He says this, Yet even now, return to me, rend your heart. I'll forgive. It's fantastic. God is so willing to receive us. The question is, are we willing to turn to him? Um, Psalm 119.5 expresses our hearts. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Or Psalm 119.106. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. The desire to obey next time is an essential part of repentance. So faith has these three parts, knowledge, assent, and trust. Repentance has these three parts, admission of sin, sorrow for sin, and turning from sin. And this is all commanded. You know, you don't, you don't rest in your own repentance. We're not even aware enough of all of our sins to repent properly and sufficiently. We rest in Christ and him alone to rescue us, uh, not our ability to clean ourselves up. We're still in need of a, a rescue and a savior. But I think it helps to, to flesh that out a bit and understand repentance a little better. I got five minutes. Let's try to do chapter 16. <laughs> if you turn a the page there to um, good works... I think um, what we've just covered raises this question logically. Well, if conversion and a good walk with God is accomplished by repentance and faith, then why do I have to put out effort to live a good Christian life, right? We started to talk about that in the third aspect of repentance, but let's uncover the question still further. You understand that the Westminster Confession of Faith was written in a context as over against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So it's specifically spelling out what the Protestant reformers believe as over against what the Catholic Church had been teaching and continues to teach. So in that understanding, in that context, it's important to discuss good works, the place of good works. For example, we, we want to avoid... All right, one more time with the timer, and then we'll be done. Five more minutes here. We want to avoid the danger of saying, as Roman Catholics say, that good works result in or good works contribute to our salvation. can't say that. And so we need to have a chapter that says, what is the place of good works? What does it not mean? And what does it mean? Also, we want to avoid the danger of denying the need for any good works. Oh, don't worry. You can be as bad as you want to be. We've got the shower. You just take a shower. It's called a faith and repentance shower. 
do it, be as bad as you want to be and get to Mass on Sunday, good to go. No, that, that is not a walk with God that is biblical. Um, even though we declare justification is by free grace, as we did in the previous chapter. And another reason why we need this whole chapter on good works is to avoid the danger of distorting the understanding of good works in such a way that the people of God make something out to be a good work which God himself has not commanded. I'll give you a quick example. Last week we studied Jeremiah 35 about wine and there was a whole clan of camping people for 250 years who did not drink wine because their forefather commanded them not to drink wine. People would love to take Jeremiah 35 and say, therefore, modern-day Christians should never drink wine or any other alcohol or any such thing. And if you take that human understanding, that human command, and put it as an overlay onto people, you are now declaring that it's a good work, and you're not biblical in doing so. So without this chapter, all these confusion points can come in. So basically, good works don't save us, yet good works are necessary And God defines what is a good work. So you look across the top of the page, understanding that our salvation is all by grace, we take on our tasks of doing good. Question 39 of the Shorter Catechism, what is the duty which God requireth of man? The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed work. Yes, obedience is still required. So section one, what is a good work? Section one of chapter 16 says this, good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. What is a good work? What God says, what God commands, period. That really helps. It's a huge start on this entire discussion. Then, if you look in section two, uh, it, it, it says, um, or, I'm sorry, let me go back and prove this from, from, from scripture. Um, good works are, are not, as the Catholics will say, that there's merit and the earn up merit, like you're putting a deposit into a bank account. And if I have a really big bank account, I can offload some to you or, or give, donate some to you or transfer some to you. That whole thing this is not biblical, it doesn't, doesn't work. But it also guards against legalism in Protestant churches, that it is by grace. For example, Hebrews 13.21, God says, He will equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So section 2 talks about the fruits and evidences of lively faith will include good works. If you actually do trust in the Lord Jesus, you will desire to live for him and serve him. And you will actually live for him and serve him. And then the, uh, the third section talks about the source of good works. Um, the ability doesn't come from us. Even when we're converted, we still don't have the ability. It's a constantly being plugged in. Think of a lamp. The lamp is plugged into the wall. If you unplug the lamp from the wall, it has zero ability to light the room. Christians have zero ability to do good works unless we continue to be plugged into Christ. It all is generated by God. What's the source of good works? God, God, God. So good works are not automatic, but they're expected and will be there for every true believers, believer. Um, section four um, is another statement that over against some of the errors of Roman Catholic Church where they have... Um, as I've tried to describe earlier, 
this giant bank account. There's a fancy word for it. You ready? Super irrigation, uh, which means that you can reach a grade level beyond an A, and that you reach an A-plus grade level, and now you have a treasury where you can give your extra credit points to another student. Um, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Let's re, let me read section four. They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to super-irrigate and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. So if you're talking about holiness, we never get there in our own behavior. We are given perfect holiness by Christ, justification by faith. We are then called to continue to trust in him faith and to continue to turn from our wrongs, repentance. And then we move forward in his strength to serve him, which is good, good works. Um, so, you know, you have section five that talks about obedience doesn't merit pardon. And you have um, section six that says, well, then if you've restricted it all up and down these sections, what value is there? So section um, six and seven talk about the incredible value uh, to good works. Um, I'll leave you with this illustration. A daughter paints a picture and gives it to her father. Does he look at that the way an art critic would look at that and evaluate whether or not that is adequate or inadequate art? Uh, God looks at that, uh, if the father would look at that picture the way God would look at our work and would say, the Mona Lisa itself would not be as valuable to me as this piece of artwork that my child has uh, created for me because it's done solely for me, out of gratitude for me, and out of a loving relationship, father to daughter. So uh, that is a better way to look at what good works have as a place for Christians than trying to earn something or meet some, some standard. <clears throat> um, maybe I could end by saying... Uh, what is the response to the gospel? That good old hymn, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Way oversimplified. We wanted to back that with all of chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession, but you get the idea. All right, I should stop.